Hey y'all, it's Brayden from OK Country, and welcome back to the This Is Country podcast, where I talk to country's best artists and songwriters to go behind the scenes of their creative process, their career, and the music industry. Today, I had the honor of talking to Zane Williams, one of the best storytellers on all of country music. Zane has lived a lot of life and has experience in the industry in many different roles, from starting out in Nashville as a songwriter to becoming one of the Texas music scene's greatest artists. Now, he has a new band called Hill Country, which released a self-titled debut album earlier this year. We're going to start off with the beginning of Zane's country music career and get the lowdown on everything that went down throughout his career, his creative process, and the formation of Hill Country and the making of the album. So to start off, let's dive into where it all began. So you grew up moving around and being involved in music to an extent, kind of wherever you were. Um... But at what point did you decide to pursue a career in country music? Was there a particular moment where you were just like, I have to do music as a career? Or what was like the decision-making process leading up to that point? Yeah, there was um, there was kind of a specific moment. I, I did music as a hobby growing up and very wasn't serious about it at all. I don't come from a musical family. Um, when I went to college at Abilene Christian University, I continued to write songs uh, just for fun and play them at little on-campus events and um, little coffee shops and stuff around town. And, <clears throat> you know, I got some good feedback. I made a couple of records um, that some of my fellow students liked. But I, even then, I, I wasn't really thinking of it as a career. I was a math major. And I was thinking about being a doctor or a teacher or something. I didn't know. And, um, but as time went by, I got more and more good feedback about my music. And um, I got closer and closer to that day of graduation where I felt like I was going to have to pick something to do with my life. And my senior year, I was honestly pretty tired of higher education. And I took a, an, an elective because it sounded like an easy A. And it was called <clears throat> Life Learning Skills. And in that class, one of the things that they had us do was um, kind of think about our priorities in life and what was important and, um, and do some, I guess, thinking about that kind of stuff. And then the, the message of the class, one of the things they were trying to tell us was, you can do anything that you put your mind to in, in life, but it may just need to be one thing. So what's your, what's your one thing that you're passionate enough about to really do whatever it takes to make it. And if you, if you'll give that kind of effort and energy to one thing, then you can do it, but you, it has to just be one thing. So I was thinking a lot about what my one thing could be. And I was, I was a senior in college and I had pretty much decided during the course of doing that class that, I didn't want my one thing to be math or, or, or teaching or whatever. I, I felt like my one thing should be music. And I made the decision then and there to uh, move to Nashville. I, on my spring break of my senior year, I flew out to Nashville and kind of found a place to live and, and got some job, some job prospects going. And, and then when I graduated college, I just packed everything I owned up in my little, 
four-door Toyota Camry and moved up to Nashville. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so I do want to talk a little bit about your time in Nashville because I think it just kind of how everything worked out based on what I've read. Um, it really kind of shaped who you became as an artist and kind of your perspective on the music industry. So when you first moved to Nashville, what was it like trying to get involved into the music scene and finding jobs? How was that process for you? Well, um, I was coming at it from as clueless a perspective as you could possibly have. Like I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any connections. I didn't have any experience. Um, and so I just started, I got a landscaping job, uh, with a landscaping crew that was hard work. And I just started, um, going out to like open mic nights and just, uh, just trying to meet people. Um, after six months, my wife moved up there and we got, we, we got married and then, um, Eventually, I after about another six months, I met a booking agent. To tell you the truth, the first year I didn't make a lot of progress because a lot of the people I met at open mic nights, I, I didn't think they were very good. And and when I was going to these events where there were more successful people there, they were they were kind of unreachable, unreachable. I didn't know how to get a co-write with them or or hang out. And I didn't really want to co-write. I'm more of a solo writer, and mm -hmm. that is sort of a strike against you as far as making friends in Nashville because co-writing is one of the main ways that you just get to know people and that they become, you know, friendly to you in your career. But eventually I met a booking agent. He got, he got me out on the college market doing solo coffee house shows as a, as a, an acoustic artist. And after that, I, I, I got to say, I, I spent a lot of time on the road. My wife went with me and we, when we were back in town in Nashville, I mainly spent a lot of time doing church stuff with my church group and volunteering with some Somalian refugees. And long story short, I never did really play the Nashville game like you really should. And, but because I didn't know what the game was or what the rules even were. And, and now, uh, you know, now I know, and I know if I, if I were to move back to Nashville now, I, I could do it better than I did it the first time. But now I'm, I'm happy in Texas. Texas is a great fit for my music and for, um, it's a great place to raise a family. And so I'm, I'm happy, but it was Nashville for me was it, it never really worked out all that great, but it, but part of it was my fault for not really taking advantage of the musical community that was there. Also in retrospect, the, the honest truth is that I moved to Nashville to, to make the kind of country music that I love, which is basically nineties country. Like, you know, mm -hmm. Andy Travis, Travis Tritt, Garth Brooks, George Strait, Alan Jackson. That was the kind of music I loved. And I moved to Nashville, but I moved there in 1999, mm -hmm. which, it was bad timing if that's what you know if you wanted to make that kind of music that was um when the the file sharing thing came out and kind of everybody freaked out and and the 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 whole industry started tightening up and and music started moving away from the traditional country sound that i was more of a fan of mm -hmm. so those are also reasons why it never really quite clicked with me in nashville 
Absolutely. Um, so I've read at one point you had a publishing deal um, there in Nashville, and you've mentioned kind of you're more of a solo writer. So based on kind of other artists I've talked to, those publishing deals are like you go to these tiny little rooms on Music Row with another person, a couple other people, and you just kind of crank out songs. So what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so, you know, that's why I, for the first seven years I lived in Nashville, I didn't want a publishing deal because I didn't want to write songs for other people. I wanted a record deal. I wanted to make music and I wanted to be a recording artist. And so um, I, I put it off and I went and did that college market thing and I did different things. Um, but eventually I, I learned that uh, basically the, the main path to a record deal in Nashville there's many paths, but the main path that most people take is they start co-writing, they get a publishing deal, they get cuts with other artists, they get to know people, they become part of the community, and record label people get to know them because they're having their songs pitched to them or demos that that person has sung on. And then after a few years of that, you've, you've, you've proven yourself that you can write hits and you've sung on so many demos that people know who you are. And then that turns into a record deal. But anyway, but for me, it was really after seven or eight years, I, I sort of, um, I, as an artist, I was tired of the college market. I kind of tried the Americana market and the folk market. And then both of those markets, I felt like maybe I was a little too mainstream for, um, and so I finally just decided at that point in my life, I just decided I should quit trying to be an artist and just focus on being a songwriter. So, um, I took a publishing deal. I actually went and tried to get a publishing deal for the first time. And by that time I had a lot of songs piled up. And so I actually got, I was able to get a publishing deal pretty quick. And the particular publisher that I signed with, they were, they sort of specialized in people that were a little bit outside of the mainstream, uh, a little bit more art, artsy leaning. Mm -hmm. And they basically loved the stuff that I was doing on my own and everything I'd written was all on my own. And so believe it or not, I, my, my wife and I had a, uh, we had a, an apartment on music row and I would just walk to my publishing company every morning and just sit there in a room by myself and try to write a song. Oh, wow. And yeah, and do that Monday through Friday, five days a week, just go, just walk over there and just sit there with a guitar, trying to write a song about what, what? who knows? <laughs> uh, and like half the time, um, I'd spend like two or three hours just in that quiet room, just like trying to come up with something and not coming up with anything. And I'd like fall asleep on the couch and then I'd hear somebody coming up the stairs and I'd like wake up and like start strumming, you know, my guitar. <laughs> Uh, working on a hit here. No, no problem. I'm working on a hit here. <laughs> and, uh, and then like, but so it was pretty, I guess, lonely and boring, uh, to, to write by myself every day that way. But, I, but I wanted to, I wanted them to see that I was showing up. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I could have written from anywhere. I could have in retrospect, probably a better way to do it, honestly, would be to go on a road trip and write in some hotel or go to the beach or go anywhere that's inspiring to you and write was, was probably a better idea. But I wanted, since I was a, the new guy on the roster, 
I just wanted to be there every day. I wanted to see how it worked. I wanted to meet the other writers and I wanted them to know that I was serious and that was that I was showing up every day. And so that's what I did every day for basically a year and a half. And, um, you know, I wrote some good songs during that time frame, and it was, it was a healthy exercise to, even though so many times it was frustrating. I mean, that's just songwriting. It was, it was, I was more productive than I normally am by spending that much time dedicated to songwriting. Yeah, that's awesome. And so at what point kind of during those years in Nashville, or I guess after, did you decide to leave? Was there a particular like moment where you're like, I got to get out of here? Or was it more of like a building of just kind of everything? Yeah, no, there was a moment. Um, and, you know, so after a year and a half with that, that publishing thing, so I had tried the college market. I'd tried Americana, I'd tried folk. I'd, I'd, and now I was doing the songwriter thing. And I, I started to learn that, I really, I am a performer. I'm a singer songwriter. I'm an entertainer. I'm, I, when I think of myself, I'm a, by nature, I'm a singer songwriter. So yes, I write songs, but I enjoy performing them for people. So for me, the creative cycle goes, I get inspired. I write a song. I enjoy going to the studio and creating that song into a finished piece of recorded music. That's really fun. And then once I have that, I want to go out on the road and I want to perform that song for people and see people enjoying that and get that out there to the public. And then that inspires me to then go write some more. And it's a cycle. And so for a year and a half, I had been just writing songs. But here, but here's the deal. Like only one of them got recorded and it was called Hurry Home. And a guy named Jason Michael mm-hmm. Carroll recorded that. And yeah. that was actually a song I'd written eight years earlier. Um, that I brought with me into the publishing deal. But but all, all the songs that I wrote during that year and a half at the publishing deal, um, I basically had a pile of 20 or 24 songs or whatever. It's basically almost two records worth of, of material that was just going to sit on a shelf and never get heard by anybody. I mean, I wasn't releasing it as an independent artist. It just wasn't getting put out there. It was basically like, you write a great song. Like I wrote a song called Pablo and Maria mm-hmm. that like is one of my best. And it's like, I give that to my publisher and they're just kind of like, mm, okay, what else you got? You know? I mean, they thought it was cool, but they also didn't think that they could really get it recorded by anybody. So it's just kind of like, uh, okay, back to work. And I, one day I was in the break room of the publishing company and there was another big name hit writer in there who has lots of number ones and, and this was 15 years ago. He's got even more number ones now. And he, um, I asked him, uh, I knew that he had moved to Nashville to be a singer songwriter. He has a, he has a good voice and he plays piano and guitar well. And I knew that he had moved to Nashville to be a recording artist. And so I asked him, man, you know, is it tough for you that you write all these good songs and nobody's ever going to hear them? just because, you know, Luke Bryan didn't want to cut it. And he said to me, he said, man, I have learned to get over that. He said, I, when I'm in the writer's room, I put my heart and soul and effort into that song. And then as soon as I walk out the door, I just forget that that song even exists. I just cut the cord. He, that's what he said. I'll never forget. He said, I cut the cord. And 
I just forget about it and I just think about the next one and I just do that over and over. And if any of the songs get cut, great. If they don't, I don't worry about it, but you'll drive yourself crazy thinking about one particular song and wishing why it didn't get cut or this or that. So he just writes the songs and then forgets about them and goes and writes another one. And that's what a lot of those Nashville guys do is they just write another one, write another one, write another one. doesn't matter what you've done in the past. What are you doing today? Write another one. And you know, that's a, that's a great attitude to have for productivity. And it, it allows a lot of those, those people to be very productive. But my nature, I realized right then and there is that I've written this song that I feel like needs to be heard, deserves to be heard by people. And before I can have enough motivation to go write another one and another one, and another one, I want the one that I wrote to be actually heard by somebody. Mm-hmm. And, so I just decided, you know what? That's it for me. I'm 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 going to move back to Texas, get close to family, start a family. I've heard I had heard that there were, you know, that there was a Texas music scene, but I didn't know much about it. And I thought I but I knew I could probably get some local gigs down there, and I thought, you know, I'll just go back to Texas, and since I write by myself anyway, I'll just send songs up here to Nashville. And at least I'll be able to perform some songs locally to some people who might appreciate them. And when I told my publisher about that, they were like, okay, well, we're letting you go then. And I was like, okay. Cause they, they were like, well, you know, we don't want to work with somebody that's not living here in Nashville. And that's not, you know, cause we think we'll, when you get down to Texas, you'll just lose focus and become unproductive. And, and, you know, if you're not, if you're not devoted enough to live in Nashville, we don't want to work with you. And so I was like, okay, bye. Peace. (laughs) That's awesome though. I mean, going out on top and being able to do that so that you can do exactly what you want to do as an artist is something like me as a music fan. I respect that so much because you you're doing what feels right for you and for your art. And I, I really like that. Um, So now I do want to kind of dive into your independent work and your solo career. So you moved down to Texas. Um, you got a lot more freedom as an independent musician in the Texas scene. And that's also when you started producing your own music. So what was it like to step from a singer and songwriter role and also throw in the producer role? And like, how did you tackle that from the beginning? Well, it, you know, I, like I said, I was as green, as clueless as they come when they first started. The first record I ever made uh, in 1999 in Nashville, which is, it's, don't go looking for it online. Cause it ain't, it ain't there people. I don't, I don't make it public anymore, but that record, I had never even heard my songs with instruments before. So, you know, I was, people were playing drums and electric guitar and bass and, and I didn't even know what to say about it. People kept asking me, what do you think Zane? And I was like, uh, I was, my mind was, was receiving so much input that it had never had before that I didn't even know what to start. So I started from just not knowing anything about music and being completely overwhelmed. But at, by the time I moved back to Texas, um, I had made, I guess, at least two records and one of them called Hurry Home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made in 2006. And that was really the first record that I was genuinely 100% proud of. And I had a really good co-producer on that project named Mitch Dane. And I learned a lot from him and I, and just was 
starting to pay more attention to how things work in the studio and just starting to learn um, stuff. So after that, I for the next few records, I kind of considered myself, well, so then Radney Foster produced a record with me. And that was awesome because he was a songwriting hero of mine. That was called The Right Place. And mm -hmm. then Ride With Me, I sort of, I knew this engineer in Nashville who, named Luke Wooten, who um, basically, he, he was more like an engineer producer. He kind of, he was mainly in charge of getting good sounds. And then I basically, by that time I had a band and we pretty much just went up there and we drove from Texas to Nashville and just busted out that entire record in like a day and a half. And I guess technically I'm sort of the producer on that one, but it was, it was my band and it was the arrangements that we'd come up with. And Luke was also sort of a co-producer on that, but he was mainly just doing sounds and stuff. And then after all those experiences, you know, then I, I had a, a guy named Tom Faulkner that came on board and did two records with me. And Tom was the most in-depth, pro real producer. Like when I think of a producer, I think of somebody that has a vision. They hear just a guitar vocal version of a song or piano vocal, just a stripped down version. And they, they can hear in their head the finished product of what all it should sound like. You know, oh, I hear orchestras and I hear, you know, sling-a-ming-a-ding-dongs on there. <laughs> and, you know, I hear, you know, prancing pony feet or whatever <laughs> they hear they hear the music right that this yeah. needs their tone guitar this needs a whatever and and tom faulkner um other than mitch dane was real good at that but then tom faulkner was a guy i worked with for overnight my overnight success album my texas like that album and he was just full of really good ideas and he had been in the studio his whole life he, he, mainly doing jingles and stuff but the thing about him the thing about tom is that um he could speak drummer he could speak guitar players so you know he'd be like uh you know you know uh he'd go in there and say to the drummer you know that uh the toms are sounding a little uh a little dry, a little bit, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin era seventies. You know, you think we could put a gel on that, Tom, or maybe, maybe do a lot. And I'm like, I don't know <laughs> anything that you're saying right now. And the drummer would be like, Oh yeah, totally, man. Blah 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 blah, and get it done. And then it's, it's the same thing with guitar players. You can be like, Man, I'm hearing this being like kind of like an an early, uh, an early The Birds. You know, kind of like a jangly like a, a telly through a such and such or whatever. And, and still to this day, I, I, I don't know all that gear and I don't know all that. I'm not an encyclopedia of recorded music the way those guys are, but there's a common language that they can speak to really communicate because music is really freaking hard to talk about. Like um, <clears throat> I've heard somebody say, you might've heard the quote that talking about music is like dancing about architecture. It's just, oh, yeah. it's just hard to put it into words, what you're saying. And a good producer uses those past musical examples and knows what, so what a telly sounds like, what a, compared to a, uh, <clears throat> a Les Paul, compared to a, a hollow top, compared to a whatever. And they can, they can kind of talk to a guitar player and 
in words tell them what they're what they're hearing and that's really helpful and so over time i've i've learned some of that and i've also just learned um a lot of it boils down to hiring musicians that you know you like what they do and you know that what they do is a good fit for this style of song that you're doing and then a lot of it takes care of itself when you do that um just knowing that's i'd say that's you know that's like 80 percent of it right there is just knowing a good engineer and some great musicians and then the extra 20 percent is that fine tuning of like you know, I don't think this uh, this I don't think this guitar part is working. We need, you know, we we need something bouncier, or we need something with a little more. We need to emphasize the two and the four instead. You know, it's all that kind of just little little detaily stuff that that can really make a song come alive. So I just picked that stuff up over time. I still don't consider myself to be a great producer, but I um I did produce Bringing Country Back by myself. Um, I guess that's maybe the first one that I've done totally by myself. Uh, you know, I thought it turned out well. I, once again, not considering myself a real producer, I thought it turned out well. A real producer is, they've done hundreds of albums, you know, or at least tens of albums, and they, they, they have a lot of experience. And I've only really ever worked on my own albums. Um, and so, but I, I do at this point, I've got seven albums out and, I guess with Hill Country, that makes eight. So I've got a fair amount of experience at this point. That's awesome. Um, wow. That's just kind of your perspective and all that and just kind of how you've experienced producers in different roles and all the things that go into being a producer. I mean, you just have to have so much experience and it sounds like you've been able to really kind of pick that up and put that back into the music as you kind of keep going from project to project. Um, so from a songwriting perspective, I love country music. Everyone loves country music because the song tells stories, but there's kind of two sides to that. You know, sometimes artists will sit down and write their own story in a song or write kind of their own emotions into a story in this, in a song. But then also there's story songs where there's like characters and it's almost like a little short story within the song. Like you have some great ones. Like I love Janie Lynn off the new album and you mentioned Pablo and Maria and Jake and Jill. You, you, you're great at that as well. So when you sit down to write a song, how does that process all start? And how do you kind of decide if you're going to write kind of your own personal story or if you're going to kind of create a new narrative like some of those other songs that I mentioned? Right. Well, I think the, the easiest, most natural thing is to write about yourself. I mean, that's sort of, and, and I think most, most of my songs are probably about myself, whatever you're going through. If you're experiencing a strong emotion or going through a certain phase of life, it's easiest to sort of write songs about that. <clears throat> the, the story songs that are about something else, like Pablo Maria or, or Jaden and Jill or Janie Lynn, um, those are more a little bit more rare for me and a lot of times they start with um just one line that uh like like pablo and maria started with the opening line so i was actually at my publishing company there in nashville feeling 
sick of trying to write commercial up-tempo radio friendly positive love songs <laughs> and so i was like i was strumming this minor chord and just kind of out of nowhere which is what happens sometimes uh in songwriting i came up with this line you know pablo escobedo took maria for his bride in the dead of winter 1835 was originally what i had and um i was like ooh I don't know what that's about, but that's, <laughs> it just sounds like a good setup to like a story. I don't know. And, <clears throat> and so in that particular song, I had, I had an old fairy tale that I was trying to turn into a song uh, several years ago when I was still in college and I, it never really worked out, but it was about this lady that froze to death and turned into this beautiful ice statue. And I'd never, it never turned, who writes country songs about crap like that? I don't know. <laughs> um, and so that song never worked out, but I kind of thought, Ooh, I wonder if I could like incorporate some sort of almost fairy tale, almost like a legend, the legend of this lady or something. And so that's kind of how that one developed. Um, Jaden and Jill actually came from 10 random words submitted by fans. So I used wow. to do this sort of a as a creativity exercise for fun uh on social media back when social media was fun because facebook didn't charge me money to talk to my own fans facebook. <laughs> that's what they do now but back in the in the early days of facebook it was free and and my fans pretty much saw everything i posted and it was it was pretty interactive and fun and um so i used to do this thing where i would ask for 10 random words and I would, you know, I'd get a bunch of responses. I would take the first 10 responses, no matter what those words were. And then I would write a song that included all 10 of those words. So I've wow. used words like, you know, the first one I ever did was my doppelganger is a gangbanger because the, the doppelganger was one of the words. I've used words like colostomy and uh, anti-disestablishmentarianism and wow. all, all these random words. But on the on the day I wrote Jayton and Jill, Jayton was one of the words, and Jill was one of the words, and um, and so I I wrote I wrote a song that actually included nine out of the ten words in the original the original version of Jayton and Jill, which you can look up on YouTube. Anybody that's curious, um, it uh, I ended up using nine out of the ten words because the tenth word was roller skates. And by the time I used the first nine words in the song, I had the sense that it was turning into a really good song mm -hmm. and I didn't want to ruin it. <laughs> all of a sudden having the main characters just go to a roller skating rink, you know, just for fun or something. Mm -hmm. So actually that, that day I used nine out of the 10 words and wrote Jayton and Jill. And then Janie Lynn, I just came up with that high on a bluff thing with the box of bones and I think that's so catchy. I love that. It's so good. So satisfying uh, to the ears. Well, so the weird thing about that song is it's once. So I was high on a bluff in Arkansas on the Arkansas River. We went on a hike with my kids and we were on a bluff overlooking the river. And I'm a nerd. So I was I, I like looking for reptiles and amphibians. That's my oh, yeah. Thing. Same here. Okay. So I, yeah, 
So I saw this tree stump that looked like, you know, it might, might have a, a snake or something under it. So I flipped it over and underneath this tree stump, there was this like half buried like sweater. Oh. Sticking out of the ground a little bit. And I was like, what the, you know, what, yeah. what, what is that? Have I just, I thought I discovered like a dead body or something. I didn't know what <laughs> I was looking at. Well, I dug it up and it was this old wool sweater that had let, was like rotting and it was wrapped around a, a mug. See, I've got that mug around here somewhere. I can show it to you. Anyway, a mug, a copper mug that had a necklace in it. And then what else did it have, Buck? Do you remember? Uh, My son's in here. I think it. It might have just been the mug and the necklace and the sweater. Maybe it had like a rock or something that said something on it. Maybe a rock or something that said something. I remember some rocks. But anyway, the point is, is that we we were on a bluff in Arkansas and we did find a sort of stashed, I wouldn't call it a treasure because the necklace it's wasn't one. worth anything. Right there. Right there. Oh yeah. Here, I'll grab the mug. I know. I know it's just audio only. I know it's audio only people here. <laughs> Use your imaginations, but, um, that's awesome. Yeah. And so I dug that up and, um, so I was just basically imagining what if it had been like a box of bones and what, what would the story be behind it if you just were in the middle of the woods somewhere and just find this box of bones. And so I, I wrote that first little part about high on the bluff. There's a box full of bones and a ring engraved Janie Lynn. And then I've got, now I've got to figure out, now I've got to write a song that explains that. And so that's how that one came about. That's awesome. Wow. Just hearing the story and that like part of it's actually inspired by a real thing. That's awesome. And of course, only in Arkansas would you find stuff like that. We yeah. we go over there quite some time. It's pretty over there hiking and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so kind of before we moved into hill country, um, you clearly kind of found your groove. You You found kind of almost your calling. It was all working out really, really well. Once you moved into the Texas scene, you're a pretty much universally revered songwriter. You're an artist. Everyone knows you. You you have great sound. And then you got invited to go play the Opry back in Nashville. What was it like? Kind of, you left Nashville, and then you found your place in the Texas scene. Then you get invited to go back. What was that whole experience like? It was cool. It, I mean, the Opry was definitely a milestone and a highlight. Um that that came about basically because of the manager I had at the time, basically getting me that gig. Um, and, um, you know, that it was a funny story how that manager ended up finding me because they were, he discovered, disco- discovered me down here in Texas, but he was a guy that I had known up in Nashville too. So they, they were doing this TV show called Troubadour Texas. Mm-hmm. And this manager, Michael Blanton was, was part of that Troubadour Texas team 
And Troubadour, Texas, uh, invited me out to try out. And basically Michael Blanton walked in and I was like, Michael Blanton, what are you doing here? You know, it's this Nashville guy that was here down in Texas, like 45 minutes from my house, uh, doing this TV show. So I was on that TV show and ended up getting managed by Michael Blanton and they got me the Opry gig. And, um, it was a it was a very cool night. I mean, Ricky Skaggs uh, was on the bill that night with me, and you know, I got to bring my kids there, and they they got to hang out backstage with Ricky and and all the other folks hanging out back there, and it's definitely a magical night to remember. I mean, my a lot of my Texas fans came up for it a lot of my family who lives in kentucky came down for it so it was almost like getting married or something it was like uh -huh. it was like you know when you've got all these people that you know from all these different parts of your life uh all in the same place it's a little weird it's like oh there's i got my i got my my kentucky cousins and i got my texas fans and i got my uh, i've got some family in nashville too that came out and so, but it felt because of all that, it just kind of felt like sort of a celebration of, uh, you know, where I'd been so far and, uh, got to sing a couple tunes. We did Jayton and Jill, the, um, the house band told me that cause the house band back, backed me up. The, uh, the Opry people would only let me bring two of my musicians. So I brought my bass player, my fiddle player, and the rest was the house band and um so they said that when they were learning the tune that you know that they played it for their family members and everybody really loved Jayden and jill and they said that it just felt good to get to play some real good country music you know oh yeah i was like wow the fact that the house band at the grand old opry is like thankful to be playing some real country music that's uh Oof. That's, that was pretty interesting i'll never forget that statement and that was back in 2015 you know but yeah I honestly think music, country music in general, maybe has gotten better. I think it has gotten better in the last five years. I think there are a lot of um, independent artists out there that are uh, making really cool stuff, whether it be Coulter Wall or Tyler Childers mm -hmm. or uh, Cody Johnson or Cody Jinks or, uh, you know, I, I think, I think there's, and I mean, there's, there's some really good major label people too. Casey Musgraves and Miranda. Oh, I love Miranda. There's, yeah. I mean, there's just a, there's just a lot of good music. I've had Chris Stapleton. I mean, I've pretty mm -hmm. much quit. I've pretty much quit complaining about, um, the state of country music because I think, I think, I think now there's at least, if you like the kind of music that I like, there's at least, quality options out there and, the, oh, absolutely. and the, people, the people that are doing that kind of music and doing it well are getting some recognition, you know, and it, they may never win the big awards or whatever, but at least they exist and they, they, they're successful enough that they can keep making music. And that's really sort of what our goal is as, as Hill Country too, is, is to just, you know, make great music and have enough of a fan base that we can continue to do that basically. Absolutely. Now that we've heard the inspiration behind Janie Lynn, here's a live quarantine performance of the song from Hill Country. Let's try it. 
Now, moving into Hill Country, the new project, the new album uh, came out a little while ago. It's just absolutely amazing. Um, but I kind of want to start just figuring out how this whole thing came about. So Hill Country's you and singer-songwriter Paul Eason, drummer Lyndon Hughes, bassist Sean Rodriguez, and multi-instrumentalist, um, doer of everything, Andy Rogers. Um, so where did the idea to start a band come from and how did it all go from there? Yeah, well, um, so I was touring in Texas with a band, but I was just doing it as Zane Williams, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at the level that I was at and, uh, you know, I was basically paying my guys per show as side men and, you know, they all, I, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that everybody that's ever played for, with me and for me has enjoyed it and has enjoyed the music and enjoyed the times that they've had. But, you know, they, they come and go uh, just if they find a better paying gig and that's the right decision for their family. You know, I've, I, I had a drummer go to Pat Green. I had a, a fiddle player go to Casey Donahue. I, I had different things like that happen. And there were other people over time that, I had a guitar player uh, go into uh, the armed forces and he was just looking for a little more stability in his life. And, um, you know, so the point is, is that with, as if you're a solo act and you've got side men in your band, they, they come and go. And I guess, um, I guess I was looking for more of an experience of, uh, of brotherhood where we were all in it together. Um, and I, I'd always, I guess, kind of wanted that and been a little bit envious of people like the Randy Rogers band that just all met each other in college or whatever. It's like, mm -hmm. well, I didn't do that when I was in college. And one day it just kind of occurred to me. So what if you didn't meet the right people in college, why don't you just, you, you probably know who they are now after seven or eight years in the Texas scene. Why not just call them up? And another thing that I did is I read, huh, I didn't even read the book. I just read like the back jacket of this book <laughs> and it was about marketing. And basically the gist of the book was, Hey, instead of trying all these fancy marketing tricks, why don't you just try to make your core product like 10% better? Um, and maybe that will separate you from the competition so that you don't need a bunch of fancy marketing tricks because mm -hmm. you're just a little bit better than everybody else. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, I also read Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, Born to Run. And in that autobiography, um, he is very, was very passionate about music and the pursuit of musical greatness. Like that dude, he was not shooting to just like, oh, I just want to get on the radio and write some decent songs. He was shooting to like be the voice of a generation, the defining like, you know, timeless rock. It's that's the music he loved and that's what he was trying to be. And basically he was restless uh, in pursuit of that goal. And so, I mean, he let some of his friends go that were in his band and he walked away from his band at one point and, he, he did lots of different things to just because the music wasn't as good as he knew it could be. And he was, he was a perfectionist about that. And I really felt like that I had 
failed myself a little bit in in not being more of a perfectionist about my music. And so I really, the whole concept for me of the band was I wanted to make the best music that I'm capable of in my life. And I think that the best way to do that is to be in partnership with other talented people who make me better and, and in a situation where everybody is, um, everybody's giving it 110% because they're, it's their project. So I wanted an even split band, you know, the Randy Rogers band, I've heard him say in interviews before, it's an even split band. And I found that surprising because I knew Randy, you know, wrote most of the songs and sings the songs. And so, uh, but you know, he basically said he knew from, uh, from an early point that they had something special and he liked the people he was with and he wanted to keep it together. So, so I just decided, well, man, what if I, if I, if I were to do an even split band where we were all equal owners, well, golly, it'd have to be the right people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, sounds great, but it'd have to be the right people. Absolutely. So then I just, then I just started thinking, well, you know, who would be my dream team? Who, what, let's just, let's just get crazy for a second. Let's just think we're going to put, I was from 40 years old. I'm going to put together a band and I want it to be whoever I want it to be. Who, who's it going to be? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I want harmonies, man. I want freaking harmonies. Oh I want, yeah. I want it to be, and I want, I want somebody else to maybe sing lead some of the time, you know, so that like, um, so like the nitty gritty dirt band with multiple lead singers or, Mm-hmm. Or even Brooks and Dunn sometimes trading off, or Alabama sometimes traded off, and yeah, um, the Eagles, right? Oh the, yes, um, Crosby, Stills and Nash. We, I could go on with all the the sort of the great groups that have had maybe multiple lead singers. So I was like, okay, well, who do I know? But I didn't want it to just be four guys with acoustic guitars, right? Mm-hmm. So I knew I knew a bunch of other singer songwriters, and it could just be four of us playing acoustic guitar. But that's not a band. Um, and so I was like, man, I need to think of people who can sing and maybe write, but who can also really get down on an instrument. And I mean, not just not just get by, but like be the guy that I want to have in the studio on that instrument. And so the first person I thought of was Paul Eason, um, because I had heard his music on the local radio station here in McKinney, a song called Mountains of Nuevo Leon. I always thought that was a cool song. I thought, I don't know who that is, that guy is, but he's got a cool voice. And then later I found out that he was playing lead guitar for Kevin Fowler. And I opened for Fowler a couple times and I watched Paul play and he tears it up on guitar. So I was like, okay, this guy's got a super cool voice that could easily be a lead singer himself. And he's a great guitarist and he also plays mandolin. Um, and so I just texted him one day. I mean, he's got this great gig with Fowler. He's on salary and everything. And I just texted him one day about two and a half years ago, almost three years ago now. And I just said, I mean, I'm not even sure why I had his number. I didn't know him very well at all, but I just said, man, I know this is crazy talk, but you and I should just put together a band and just take over the world. What do you say? And he was like, uh, I'll call you tomorrow, you know, mm-hmm. talk about it. and I, I wasn't surprised that he was interested just cause he is a singer songwriter and 
in the Fowler project, which he loved doing and Fowler has been super sweet about the whole thing. But, um, you know, he wasn't, Paul wasn't getting to sing lead or do any of his own songs. And so mm -hmm. I, th I thought that he might be interested in my thing and turns out he was. And then, um, long story short, after that, we went searching for other great vocalists and we found Lyndon and neither, neither Paul nor I really knew Lyndon, but we saw some video of him playing with Roger Crager and singing, uh, let's get it on. Mm -hmm. uh, and just killing it, singing on the drum. We were like, golly, dude, where do you find a drummer that can sing like that? That's And so we went to talk to him, and he was down to try it. And we, we recorded some guitar vocal. Uh, we recorded some guitar and then the three of our vocals that day at Linden's studio because he's an engineer. And sort of, by that time, he had left the road with Crager and was an engineer in down in Houston. And we recorded some guitar vocal stuff with the three of us. And um, if you're uh, if you if you support our band with a monthly thing, then you get access to our audio vault. And those those original there's a uh, an original demo that we did that day that's in the audio vault. And it's it's the literally the day that that Paul and I met Lyndon and first heard our three voices blend together. But it was a great blend and. Then we, then we got Andy on board. Andy was playing bass with me at the time. And so originally we were going to have him be our bass player, but then we heard him play banjo and dobro and we were like, well, shucks, man. It'd be easier to find another bass player than it would be to find somebody that plays banjo and dobro as well as you do. Why don't we just have you do that? And so we did that. And then we found Sean Rodriguez was the last guy to come on board as our bass player. And he's, He's a, he's got a really good voice too. So he really, we were lucky to get him because he's, we needed somebody with that really high voice. He's got a really high voice and he had just, he quit the Brie Bagwell gig and was just kind of bumming around Austin, not doing a lot. And uh, so it was just good timing. We hit him up and kind of convinced him to come on board. And, um, and then we just, we know we 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 put together an album that we self-produced and it's it's i wrote all the songs one of them i co-wrote with paul and he sings lead on that one and um i wish we could have had more that paul sang lead on so we're, that'll be a goal for our next album and um we ended up self-producing it we paid for it ourselves and we started touring in in 2020 you know and mm -hmm. uh, we we had plans to, you know, hire a publicist and a radio promoter and sort of do a big album launch this summer. And um, then, then COVID hit and we lost all of our gigs and we didn't really feel like we could go into even more debt to hire a publicist and a promoter. So we canceled that plan and we basically just stuck it on the internet in hopes that somebody would at least hear it. And the weird thing is, is like last week, uh, Luke Combs, uh -huh. one of the biggest guys in country, tweeted and said, I can't stop listening to this. You know, it does everything I want that album to do. Yeah. Blah, blah. You can look up his tweet. It was, uh, it was very complimentary and completely out of the blue because I've never met Luke and I don't, I don't know anybody that knows Luke and I had no idea that Luke even knew he existed. But it was really cool because – 
you know, we just stuck the album on the internet through TuneCore. So it's on Spotify, it's on iTunes, it's on Apple Music. Mm-hmm. But we basically just stuck it on the internet. Um, and other than that, though, we didn't, we didn't have any big CD release parties. We didn't have a, we didn't have a publicist getting us out there or anything. And, uh, and then out of the blue loop tweets about us. And, um, turns out he's been a fan of my music since 2012. Who knew? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then honestly, we've, we've had a couple of calls this week from, uh, some, you know, some music business people, um, wanting to, learn more about us and maybe, maybe work with us because of that. And they, they found our music because of that tweet. So it'll be interesting to see what the fallout from it is. It could be that it could be that we have a long successful career that was all jump started by, by Luke Combs's tweet to be a pretty Absolutely. Cool that's, that's so awesome. And I was so, so excited when I saw that tweet because you mentioned, you know, your goal is to be, not necessarily do all the marketing stuff, but just be that like little bit better than everyone else and just push yourself that, that much further. And I think, I mean, pretty much from what I've been able to see is that's working exactly as you probably hoped it would. I mean, the album is just so good from so many standpoints. I mean, the, the thing about good music and no matter how much you pay for publicity and marketing, if you make good music, people are going to talk about it, I think. And I think right. that's what really gets the ball rolling. And yeah. so I think that's been cool to watch. I mean, I was listening to this album pretty soon after it was released. I remember I just saw someone tweeting about it. I'm like, okay, let's, let's look at that. Um, Cause I, I honestly didn't even know the connection to you in the beginning from it. And right. then I heard the voice and I'm like, okay, this is familiar. Um, but it, that's just so cool. And I think you definitely achieved your goal with, just kind of pushing yourself that little bit further because it's obviously spread. Um, and so the album itself, it's lyrically pleasing, but it's also just so sonically pleasing. It's so rich and there's so many different sounds at play. I mean, there's like bluegrass and evergreen and Dixie Darling. Dixie Darling was the song that just got me hooked on everything. And mm. uh, there's just such luxurious harmonies like on audios the beginning of Janie Lynn, it reminds me of uh, Seven Bridges Road a little bit, um, like Eagles, everything just sounds so good. And then just the real country Texas music feel, Palomino Gold, the Eagle. And, you know, for me, this might happen with a handful, definitely less than five albums a year, where, you know, I listen to the album in order, but then each time I listen, a different song just gets stuck on my stuck in my head. And then I just listen to it over and over and over again. And I have like my little moments with each one of the songs. And then when mm-hmm. I go back to the album and listen to all the songs again, it's kind of like remembering all those different moments of the songs put together. And they all have different feels, um, all kind of the different sounds, but it all is still so cohesive. So when you sat down to do the production of the album and record the album, um, like from a production standpoint, what was it like to try and blend all these sounds like a little bluegrass here, a little Texas here, have some harmonies here. What was it like to put all those different pieces together and make the album what it is? Yeah. Well, it was, you know, my goal when I was trying to put together that a team, my, my thought process from the beginning was just get people who are really great and then just let our sound be what it is like let let it be what we 
five people sound like together. And so when we first, before we found Sean, our bass player, um, we got together and Andy played bass and then Andy overdubbed the banjo and the dobro. And so we, we actually got together at this, uh, uh, sort of an inexpensive little studio. Shout out to my buddy, Ken Tondre, who let us, um, uh, do these sessions at his little place called the compound, which is in dripping Springs outside of Austin. Mm -hmm. And it was an inexpensive place where we could just go. We weren't, we weren't recording the album. These were, these were the demos that where we were just basically trying to decide if we were a band and if we even liked each other and what, what, what did we sound like? Who, who's going to play what, you know, like I said, we ended up, switching Andy from bass to dobro banjo instead. And we didn't know if we needed a fiddle player or not, or do we need a, a steel guitar or not, or do we, you know, and um, long story short, you know, we just sort of, when you listen to the album, we, we, the band played all the parts. Um, and uh, the, so the, the, the combination of, I guess sort of flavors or styles is just kind of the combination of things that we know how to do. Basically Angie, uh, Andy, Andy can play the banjo and the dobro and the guitar and the mandolin. And then Paul can play mandolin and guitar, electric guitar really well or acoustic. And then I pretty much, and I'm like the weak link of this all. I just, I play acoustic guitar, but I've been working really hard on my acoustic guitar uh, the last several years actually, so that I can be, so that I can be the guy that plays on the record and plays really good, interesting parts, you know, that are, that, uh, where it's me, that we're not having to hire somebody. And, and, but if there was ever something that Paul sounded better on, we would just have him do it or whatever. But it was just, it's basically like everybody has their tools that they bring to the table we have these tools and so it's like, well, what do we have in our toolkit to, to do on this song? And then we, we just, we just kind of put it together. We, uh, you know, we, when we first went into the studio to record the real album, um, we actually went in with a producer, uh, who we were hoping could could be sort of almost like a sixth band member and kind of just come up with some ideas that we might not have thought of and long story short she had sort of a rigid way of running things that that sort of we chafed under and it didn't end up working out and that was a setback for us and we were um we ended up self-producing this um kind of just because we had to and just because i guess part of going through that experience with that producer was just realizing that we could do it ourselves. Like we, we had the vision. I mean, Lyndon, our drummer has been an engineer and producer. That's his day job. I suppose you could say for the last, uh, several years, uh, down at, uh, Stormy Cooper media. And so he's worked with Roger Crager. He's worked with Cody Johnson. He's worked with, uh, Jesse Robb Jr. And Bree Bagwell, lots of different people as an engineer, as a producer, as a drummer, as a singer. So he's got lots of studio experience between, between the five of us. We just had lots of studio experience. We kind of knew what we wanted. We kind of know who we are. We know what we think is cool. 
And so at the end of the day, it was just a matter of like, uh, you know, well, shucks, I don't think we like that microphone. We need to like do that again to make that better. Or man, that guitar part just really is not working for me. Uh, but it was a very, it's a very collaborative, um, it's a very collaborative thing. And I still think, you know, I'm interested in, you know, working with a producer in the future who I still think it's, it would give us maybe an extra spark or a, something to have the right person giving us some good ideas that once again, we might not have thought of that might push us a little bit beyond our boundaries. Mm -hmm. But what this, what this first album definitely ended up being was us doing what we know how to do, producing ourselves, playing, playing all the instruments ourselves and just, uh, you know, that this is what we sound like. And if you come see it, see us live, you know, spoiler alert, it's pretty much going to sound like the record. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously we, we have fun with some of the tunes and we can mess around with the arrangements and we can do some medley type stuff and, and there's nothing like seeing it live, but, but it is us doing it. And that's, that's part of the reason why you can, why we can do all that harmony stuff. Like you were talking about on audios and Janie Lynn, like I would never do that on a solo album. Mm -hmm. Uh, even though I could hire, I could hire some harmony singers to come in and, and sing that. But why would I do that if I can't do it live? Like that's lame. Yeah. That's, that's like the Eagles recording seven bridges road and then showing up. And then it's only one guy singing when they actually do it live. That would be lame. Mm -hmm. So the, the fact that it's actually us that is singing on the record and that we can actually pull that off live means that we can record it that way, which is, uh, which is fun. And so anyway, that's just a big long way of saying, um, it's just kind of us doing what we do. Paul has a really sort of a southwestern vibe to everything he does, and he's really uh, well-versed in um, electric guitar. And then Andy is originally from Tennessee. He grew up playing in a family bluegrass band situation, um, and so he, he's got that, uh, the banjo and the dobro, he's got that style. Um, Lyndon is is a very versatile drummer who is just as equally comfortable with sort of a percussion-y stripped down type approach as he is with a full kit. Mm -hmm. And he's a, he's a harmony nut. And um, so he was, he was really the main guy that sort of pushed us to make the harmony parts better and cleaner and, and, and more well thought out. And then Sean, Sean came in by the time, by the time we finally found Sean and got, got him involved in the project, the, the record was, um, mostly finished. It was about two thirds finished. So Sean actually played bass on the last third of the record. And, um, it was Andy and that former producer of ours that had played on the first part of the record, um, played bass, but, um, but you know, Sean, Sean was the guy that we needed and he'll, he's, we're already working on a lot of new stuff that, you know, Sean sounds great playing bass on and adding his vocals in there. And so I don't know, man, I'm, but I do know that I do know that we just, it's fun to be part of a group of guys that has so many tools in their toolkit. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I even learned to play accordion for this thing. So, wow. so I was like, dude, I'm slacking. I need to like play something other than acoustic guitar, especially 
like on adios, Paul, Paul's playing acoustic guitar and singing. So what am I going to do? Stand there and uh, twiddle my thumbs. <laughs> and I felt like, you know, that, that song I thought could use some accordion. And I grew up playing piano, but I've never played accordion. So I thought, well, I don't know. What the heck? How hard can it be? So I put on <laughs> Facebook, hey, man, does somebody have an accordion I can borrow? And some friends of ours were like, man, yeah, we got one sitting in the closet. And so they pulled out their grandma's accordion or whatever and, you know, dropped it off of my house. And I learned to play accordion and, and I played accordion on, uh, on the record there on audios. That's awesome. So something I love about this album is the frequent use of rivers and naming rivers in a lot of the songs. I found that really interesting. So River Roll mentions a flat rock river. Um, there's a line, time is a river in the Eagle. Um, there's the Frio river and Palomino gold, the Rio Grande and adios. There's a stream in evergreen, the Arkansas river and genuine and the rivers are all over this record. And I really like it because it's cohesive between the songs, but it also gives a real sense of imagery and it really kind of paints a picture of a scene. So I wanted to know just because they're so prevalent on this album is there any kind of lyrical or thematic uh, perspective that rivers give in the songwriting or was there any intent to have rivers kind of all over the record or where that came from? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, so there wasn't definitely wasn't an intent per se. Um, I do. You're right though, that I've got, I just got a lot of rivers in my songwriting in general. Um, for one thing, I love being around rivers and streams and creeks. Um, and so I guess I just find them peaceful, inspiring places to be. So like river roll, I actually came up with that guitar lick that starts it off. I came up with that guitar lick while I was sitting and staring, uh, not at the Frio river, but at, or even a river in the hill country, but we were in, uh, let me get this right. We were in Montana. Was it Montana or Colorado? Golly, but we were somewhere up north, and I was staring at this river that was basically snowmelt river, um, and um, and it was just a beautiful afternoon, and with the kind of the, the water rushing by there, I sat there playing guitar and came up with that lick, mm -hmm. and so... That, that I guess that's the reason I ended up taking it in the direction of a river lyrically is just because I sort of came up with that lake while I was by a river. I've always felt like like rivers and highways are both show up a lot in my stuff because I just feel like that's what life is. It's a stream of yeah. consciousness. It's a stream of it's a stream of experience that um, that we we sort of flow along with and um you know i love garth brooks song the river i've always loved that song mm -hmm. uh, and but yeah you're right i i didn't even think about i knew that there i knew the frio rivers in there a couple times uh but i didn't even think about all those other rivers the arkansas rivers and Janie lynn that's because of that that's where i was when i yeah. found that sweater under a tree stump <laughs> and then, uh, um, and then uh, yeah and then Palomino Gold um, 
Palomino Gold, I came up with that song title when um, I was trying to think of band names and uh, I was messing around with um, like words that sounded kind of Southwestern-y to me, like Palomino. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was trying to, I was honestly trying to think of band names that had the word Palomino in it. And I thought of Palomino Gold and I was like, basically I was just like, I think that's maybe maybe that's a song title, not a band name. And, um, I, I ended up writing that song, um, with that title. That's how I came up with that, that title that led to that whole song was actually trying to think of band names for the band. Um, that's awesome. but that's really cool. Yeah, no. And I love to just kind of listening to the album, just kind of hearing all these different rivers kind of come off um, in different songs is really cool. And it kind of just took the album to all these different places. And again, like when you mix in those kind of different kinds of sounds and instruments and all the different songs, I thought it was a really cool kind of experience when you put it all together. Um, one thing I'll say about that real quick is just, that's part of the reason why we ended up picking the name Hill Country is because Hill Country specifically refers to a part of Texas that's really beautiful and has all these nice rivers and hills. But we also felt like the term Hill Country could easily refer to somewhere in Colorado or somewhere in North Carolina or somewhere, uh, you know, all these, my favorite parts of the country are the whole Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho area. And then, and then the whole Appalachian, uh, North Carolina, East Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, and then Texas. And, and so Hill Country seemed to sort of speak to all of those places, even though it's, it's, it's sort of Texas-y without specifically saying, we're from Texas. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Um, I guess this is more of a personal based issue question, but any chances uh, this album's going to be pressed on vinyl? Yes. And the, the main thing we're waiting on right now um, is that, so the downside, since we're talking about the band name, the downside of the band name Hill Country is that it's, uh, it's so general that there are some other band names that have some names that are similar. And then there's this, there's this, uh, it turns out somebody else owns the trademark of restaurant, um, owns the trademark for the phrase Hill Country. And so we're, I don't know, we may end up having to change our name, to be honest, but or we may know. not. I don't know. I don't know what's going to work out. But so I've been kind of putting off pressing up CDs and vinyls because like, I'm just like, well, are we going to have to change our name or not? And I'm trying to answer that question. Um, I'm not worried about it either way because um you know we're we're the same people and it's the same music and yeah um it doesn't it doesn't stress me out it's not a stressful thing but that's the main reason that and just some of the factories being shut down because of covid are sort of my main excuses for not already having it on vinyl but we will definitely have it on vinyl i think all of our music going forward we'll always have on we'll always do a few vinyls uh because that seems to be uh, something that music lovers uh, are into these days or just probably will be going forward. And, um, and then we have, uh, we're also, 
we have this thing called the Hill Country Hideout that's mm-hmm. for our, our members that it's sort of like a fan patron model where crowdfunding model where except instead of it being through a, another website like Kickstarter or Patreon, it's just through our own website so that we can just do it our own way and control it. And so we'll, what we do is we just have a section of our website that you get access to when you're a member and it's got an audio vault. It's got a bunch of songs on it that you can't, some of them you can find other places and some of them you can't about half of them you can't. And then it's got a sort of a little forum that's sort of like our little private social media place where we talk with our fans that are members. And then it's got a um, place where you can reserve front row seats at our shows for members. And we're going to just start doing that from now on. Just kind of reserve the front row for hideout members. And um, it's, it's an exciting thing for me because it's kind of a safe place to like try out my music without making it public. So like I'll, I'll write a new song and just record it on my phone and just post it on the hideout, see what the hideout members think about it. And, um, um, and it gives me a safe place to do that. And I think what we've been talking about doing starting in September is we're going to just start giving our hideout members one song a month, fully recorded, mixed, mastered, final, and just give them one song a month. Um, and then after however many months of that, that we feel like we've got an EP or a record, then maybe we'll just, then we'll put it on Spotify, you know, but that way yeah. our hideout members are getting it as we go along. And, um, and the hideout members are the ones paying for it. See, so that there, that monthly money that we get, uh, the idea is if we can get even just a few hundred people to give us $5 a month, then that's our recording budget. And you know, we can go make the music. We can give it to the hideout members as we create it. So they're, they're more of the part of the creative process. And they see mm-hmm. it go down. That that's just good for me, man. Cause I'm, it's tough. Like when you, you write a song and then you, 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 you have to save up money and save up songs until you finally go into the studio. So it's like a year later that you go into the studio and record that song. And then it's a year later after that, that you finally put it out and it finally maybe gets it on the radio or something. So normally like Dixie Darlin is our current radio single. I wrote that song three years ago. So there's just such a huge delay and it's, um, I've always just thought that you just, that's just the way it is. You just got to put up with that. But the cool thing about the hideout is that, we don't have to put up with that. We just, as soon as I write a song or as soon as we record a song, we just stick it on the hideout and at least our, at least our membership gets to hear it immediately. And that for me is satisfying. Um, and, um, kind of scratches that itch to just like share it. It's such a, it's, it's so sort of, it's an uncomfortable feeling when you've got this album and it's finished and you're so excited about it, but nobody can hear it. It's I, I'd rather just give it to people. Um, and so that's what we do on the hideout. And right now we've got a hundred and some odd people signed up for that already. And we've only been doing it for two or three months. So we're real pleased with that, but we want to, we want to try to get it up to 500 people by the end of the year. And if we can do that, then, um, that'll be enough money to just, uh, record and promote our music each year. And shucks, dude. When we, if we can get that in that position, I'll just quit. 
I don't, I won't, I won't feel so pressured to post on social media or anything else. Cause I just got my own fan base that I can speak to anytime I want. That's the thing, you know, the, the social media, I'm thankful for it on the one hand, but on the other hand, they're selling people's information and mm-hmm. they're going the flow of, of when we post stuff, not a lot of people see it and we have to pay money to Facebook so that more of our fans see what we post. And I just, I'm just kind of tired of that game a little bit. I mean, we'll always post some stuff on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter stuff, but, but it's, it's been fun having an alternative and the, our, our alternative is the hideout. Absolutely. Uh, that's, I, it's like you read my mind because the next questions I had on here was about the hideout and I, as a music fan, it's just so great to be able to, it's almost like a connection with the band. Like we're kind of part of it, like you mentioned of the creative process. And also it's great because, you know, the subscription that like you have on the hideout, it's not taking cuts from Spotify and Apple music. And like, I think it's like 0.007 cents per stream or something like that these days. So it also helps, I think directly support the band. And I think for music fans, that's something that's really important, especially these days with streaming and all that. Um, yeah. Uh, at 110%. I mean, I, I use Spotify and I, I pay the $10 a month or $12 a month, whatever it is. And I'm super thankful for it. Cause that, that way I can check out all the new artists that I'm not sure if I like them or not, but I would just want to check it out or I can listen to old stuff and I love it. So don't get me wrong. I love all that stuff. And for, if you're just a casual music fan or, or whatever, that's great. But it is just a reality that a lot of the money that Spotify collects gets kept by Spotify or goes to big name artists that are getting mm-hmm. millions, millions of streams. And not a lot of it trickles down to um, independent artists or at least not a lot all at once. You know, it, it may mm-hmm. add up over 10 years or 20 years, but that doesn't help you if you just went into debt to make your record, you know, you need to, you need to pay off that debt in the next year or two, uh, ideally. And, um, compared to selling physical copies, streaming doesn't help you recoup your income as much, Mm -hmm. but this, but it doesn't take very many people given just $5 a month to really cover everything that we need. And so basically my, my pitch to people is, if we're like your favorite band or one of your top three or five favorite bands, then maybe just consider giving us $5 a month and we'll invite you into a more inclusive experience that frankly, you're never going to get with a bigger name artist anyway. Yeah. We're really bringing you along for the ride. And my goal is to, you know, know all of our hideout members names and faces and, you know, have it be a, a personal thing. And then, um, and then, you know, it, if you do that, because, because of like what you said, the, the only person taking a cut is the credit card processing, which is like 3% or something. Mm-hmm. So other than that, all the money is actually going to our recording budget. Um, so it's a great, it's even better. It's even better than buying a shirt or something. Cause you know, when we buy a shirt, maybe 50% of that it ends up being in profit for us or whatever. Mm-hmm. But so there, those are, it's all good, but it is, a. I think it's honestly, to me, the idea of having a small dedicated fan base that's willing to support the music a little bit. And so you spread that out 
I think that may be the most pure, beautiful music business model I've, I've ever heard of because it takes the business part out of it. You just literally create music that you think is great and you give it to the people who love it and appreciate it with no middlemen in between, no delay, no, no BS, Absolutely. No, no corporate, uh, you know, suckers sucking out the profits, no, no algorithms messing with, you know, the flow of information. Um, so that was, that was sort of an idea I had just six months ago where I was just like, man, I'm so tired of all this stuff. We have the internet. Why can't we connect directly with our fans directly, directly, not through social media, not through some website that we don't own that could shut us down or that, that we have to play by their rules or whatever, but just, just a direct connection between us and the fans. And so we can do that. And, and we are doing that on the hideout and it's, it's cool, man. I I'm, I'm excited about it. Like I said, we just launched it a couple months ago and we're, um, we're doing kind of a member thon coming up. Uh, we're going to do kind of an online concert coming up. Let me see when that is, um, where we're going to, we're going to get the whole band together and we're going to perform and everything, but we're also going to just be kind of, we're going to do like an open house on the hideout where we let everybody come in for a day and, you know, stream the audio and look at the video. Cause we also have a theater in there. We call it the hideout theater where it's sort of like our own personal YouTube. We got stuff in there that's not on YouTube and stuff. And so members get access to all that stuff. So we're doing that uh, on the 31st of July. Before we go, we have another performance from Hill Country. This one is the song that drew me into the band, and it's a personal favorite of mine. This one is Dixie Darlin. Once my sweetheart, now the sweetheart of the rodeo She heard the highway calling with the melting of the snow and I tried Yes, I tried To change her mind Dixie, darling, did you find what you were Greener
Gypsy called me late one night on Colorado time Told me she was two weeks late and she knew it must be mine I wanted to raise a family right here in this little town But in the end she wasn't ready to have a kid and settle down want to thank Zane so much for talking with me. He's an artist I truly respect and getting to dive deep with him into the different stages of his career and the making of the new album was such an honor. Be sure to check out Hill Country's new album available wherever you can listen to music and also be sure to check out the Hill Country hideout and support the band at hillcountry.band. And as usual, you can find me at okcountry1 on Twitter for daily country music conversations and be sure you subscribe to the This Is Country podcast wherever you're listening and leave a review if you enjoyed today's conversation. Got a lot of awesome interviews coming your way, so I'll see y'all soon. Mm-hmm.